Father, your word is alive. It is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces even dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is the critic of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God, we thank you so very much for your work of grace. We thank you that when it came to the matter of the strategies of salvation, that you did not leave it to the caprice and whim of man, but rather you accomplished a work on our behalf that was fully and completely and sovereignly yours. We're thankful, Lord, for the fact that we have brought, been brought into a union with Jesus Christ and that the marvelous result of that is glorious victory and the peace and joy that you intended for us to have. Father, we pray that you would cause us to lean upon you, to learn from you, and to be those that indeed are committed to knowing you more and better as time goes on so that we might enjoy even more of the benefit that has been given to us. Give us a good time tonight as we seek to explore a, a very simple and yet a very profound concept that you've given us in your word, and we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans chapter 6, we have the very basic text that speaks of the miracle that Jesus Christ did at the point of salvation, one of the many miracles that he did, whereby we are brought into a union with Jesus Christ, <coughs> joined to Christ, and identified with him. We were speaking a little of this on Sunday night. Identified with him in what is termed real baptism, that is the baptism of the Spirit, whereby we are brought into union, into identity with Jesus Christ. And with that uh, comes the co-teaching, the fact that we, are, we have, have been crucified with Christ. That, of course, is the terminology you find, not in Romans uh, chapter 6, but in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. There is something that happened at the cross that is vitally important as far as our lives are concerned. And that is that we identified with Christ in his crucifixion, identified with him then in his death on the cross, identified with him in his burial and in his resurrection. And thereby, that which we were in our old basic nature, the Adamic nature, has been completely and finally judged. And because it is under judgment, it, like Satan, may have a little energy, a little strength, but is helpless to bring defeat to a Christian who walks by faith. Now, I said a mouthful, and I hope we can explain it. But let me say it in perhaps a little different way. Jesus Christ purchased on the cross of Calvary and gave to you the moment of salvation, the ability to live in resurrection power day by day, moment by moment, by faith. So that the life that you live now by faith is a life that is in victory and does not have to fall into sin. Now, I didn't say that you won't sin. 
I said, inasmuch as you walk by faith, you won't sin. I said, not that you would never taste defeat, but that as you as you draw upon the resource that God has provided, you will not taste defeat. The tragedy is that we, in a very real sense, have dual natures. Uh, we have a propensity to sin that is inherent in what the scripture calls the flesh. There is still the same kinds of desires that you always had even before you were a believer. You don't lose those desires. You don't lose the uh, the the uh, desire to have things which give you selfish and personal pleasure. You don't lose a desire. But you do have new power to deal with the desire. Now, Romans chapter 6, as I said, is the definitive passage on this particular idea. And I want to take the time to read a little of this, make a few comments as we go along. Verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Uh, the antinomian forces that were a part of the church in Rome had been putting forth the idea that since God saved us by grace, therefore, and keeps us by grace, incidentally, therefore, it really doesn't matter what you do. In fact, if you can find some real juicy sins to sin, then uh, what that will do, because after you sin, God will have to forgive you, it will show even more strongly the grace of God. Now, it sounds logical that after all, we're bound for heaven, and uh, we, we are saved, as far as heaven is concerned, it's secured not in our work, but in the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul has made that very clear. But he anticipates that as people hear of how solid grace is in terms of salva a salvation that is totally apart from works, that there is always going to be that individual that is going to assume that one can go ahead and sin to his heart's desire, and all that will do is magnify the grace of God because the bigger the sin, the greater the grace, right? Now, that's the logic. And Paul says, no way. Absolutely no way. That is not what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is not one where you just do as you please because there was a real transaction that took place at the moment of salvation. And he says then, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? There has been a death. As far as our lives are concerned, because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, there has been a death. We have died to sin. We have changed positions from one that was in sin, remember Ephesians chapter 1, to one that is in him. We have changed from being one who had no choice because you were under the domination and power and bondage of sin to being released from sin. Why would one released want to go back and do the same thing all over again? Sin, the sin of Adam in the garden was a simple act of disobedience. And that simple act of disobedience brought death upon the race. Look at the mess we're in. Consider it. 
There is no way that when Christ died as the second Adam, giving his life for we who are under the bondage of the first Adam, there is no way that he wants us to come from this new cleansed position where he's made us new creation in Christ Jesus and regenerated us and have us stick our fingers back in that mud again. There's just no way. It is absolutely incompatible to think of a Christian sinning. Even though it is possible for the Christian to sin when he fails to walk by faith and begins to try to walk by sight. Nevertheless, it's incompatible to even think that one who has been crucified with Christ should just live like any old sinner. One of the things you learn after you become a Christian is that whereas you could sin with pleasure before, after you receive Christ as Savior, you have no more fun. There's more, far more guilt after salvation than there was before. There was guilt before, but now it's devastating. We think in terms of, of uh, the closeness we had with the Lord before we sin, and we, we, we face the reality that his blood is available to cleanse us from all sin if we'll just agree with him that it's wrong, and we know the pleasure of our walking with God. And believe me, nothing in the world, nothing that sin offers, can approximate the pleasure of peace that passes all understanding and a walk with the living God. There's just nothing there. Now, we have short memories, and we forget sometimes. And so we do sometimes do those things that are displeasing in God's sight and even sometimes habitually sin. But when you lay in your bed at night and you look up at the, at the ceiling, you realize how empty you are. You realize what you're missing. It's time after time the true born-again believer is going to come to the place where he's not going to be able to stand it any longer. He's got to get right with God. And that's why... Uh, we we simply cannot enjoy sin like the sinner does. So quit it. Stop it. Don't even try. Cut the thing out of your life and experience. So he says we're, we've died to sin. How can we still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized or identified into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too... Now notice, this actually, far more than just the mechanics of it, this is the point of his argument here. We too might walk in newness of life. In other words, the very purpose for Christ dying on the cross and the purpose of our identifying with him is not so we could stay in the grave, but so that we might enjoy the resurrection life of Jesus Christ in a daily experience and walk in newness of life. For if, and that's a first-class condition, meaning a fulfilled condition, you understand, don't you, that there are four kinds in the Greek, there are four kinds of ifs. There is if and it's so. That's a fulfilled condition. That's, that could be translated since. If and it's not so... That is the second-class condition, and a second-class condition means simply that, that uh, from the, the reader or the writer's viewpoint, that you, you may say this as a hypothetical statement, but you assume it not to be true. Third-class condition is, a hypo, again, a hypothetical condition in that maybe it's so, maybe it's not. It usually involves human will. Fourth-class condition is only found once in the New Testament, and that an only, only a partial one, but it's, I wish it were so, 
but it's probably not. So it's a fourth class condition using the optative. And so you have four kinds of conditions. Uh, one of my best uh, illustrations of this is uh, when Satan appeared to Christ, he said, if you be the son of God, first class condition, he had no doubt about it. He wasn't saying if, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. He was saying if it's so since you are the Son of God. But then when he, when he asked him to uh, fall down and worship him, remember? He says, he says uh, if you will fall down and worship me, but you won't. Second class condition. Third class condition is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you do, though, then... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fourth class conditions over there in 1 Peter chapter 2 where it says, If you suffer for Jesus' sake, I wish it were so, probably isn't. Why? Because in the next verse he says, If any of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as a busybody in other men's matters, there are other things that cause what's called deserved suffering. So those are the four, the four conditions. Here he's using a condition of the first class, which is if and it's so, or since we have become, and here is the principle, united with him. There is a unity with him. This is the miracle that took place. And the very basis for our argument here tonight is that in the seventh place, at the point of salvation, we were brought into union with Jesus Christ. So if you please, his life is available to be coursing through the veins of this body, which is merely a mortal body. A transfer of life, an exchange of life. A very fascinating text over in Isaiah 41, where it says, it says that, that um, they... Better turn to it because I am all of a sudden got a mental block. I usually can quote it without any problem. Oh, that it's they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. The word in the Hebrew means actually, you know, you think of renewal. Uh, you can see how the word came about even in the English because something new has taken the place of something old. Do you understand? But in the Hebrew, it's very explicit. For it, it could be translated just as easily to exchange that which is worse for something better. He that renews his strength, who turns his strength in and receives the strength of Christ, there is an exchange of life. They that wait on the Lord, in the midst of that waiting on the Lord, there is a change of strength. Your strength is put out to pasture, and you take his strength and then go forth. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. And so, you see, the, the, the marvel of the Christian life is that there is an exchange of life. Somehow or another, you have to grab hold of that principle that there has been an actual exchange, that, that you are now united with Christ so that his life becomes available to be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit by faith through your life so that you can live not defeated any longer, but live in victory. Now, it says then that he, that 
we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Why? Purpose clause now. Here is the purpose for our old self being crucified with him, that our body of sin might be, it says here, done away with. The word is katar geol. Karta geol is a word that actually means to render inoperative. It paralyzes. Uh, It's used in the same sense over in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter um, 2 where it says this in verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself Likewise, also, speaking of Christ, of course, partook of the same, that is, of the flesh and blood, purpose clause, with a purpose that through death he might render powerless. Katarego, or geo. It is the word, again, that is simply a matter of reducing something to inactivity, to make of no effect, to nullify. Satan is no longer able to do something. How, what, what isn't he able to do? Well, he used to have the power of death. The devil, it says, had the power of death. But now Christ has delivered those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. One of the things that, that constantly is over the head of the unbeliever is the fact of his fear of death. Christians can't be intimidated. Satan can try, and you can fall prey if you forget what God has promised. But death should not, for the believer, be a fearsome thing. I like to use this illustration, if I may, in regard to the devil, and much the same with the flesh. When I was a boy, I was mischievous. I know that's hard to believe because I'm so serious now. But anybody that knows me knows that I still once in a while am a little mischievous. Nevertheless, we used to go to camp in eastern Montana every year where my dad would speak. A place called South Valley Bible Camp. Now when you think of camp here, you know, you think of Mount Hermon or Mount Gilead or or Mission Springs, or someplace like that. When we talk camp, we talk the Badlands, all right? Eastern Montana is mostly Badlands. I figured out when I was a boy exactly what that meant. There wasn't anything good about it, I'll tell you that. But it was a fun place to be. Lots of canyons and and, uh, crevices and lots of rattlesnakes. And uh, most of all, uh, we didn't mess with the rattlers, but most of all, Lots of great big bull snakes. Now, you don't mess with a rattler because a rattler can kill you, but a bull snake is absolutely harmless. But it's even more harmless if you chop his head off. You chop the head off of a bull snake, and uh, four days later he's still wiggling. The tremendous amount of uh, mass 
that these snakes have uh, causes a lengthy rigor mortis to set in. And there is nothing quite like having a headless bull snake in your hand and feel that thing wriggling just like a real snake, knowing good and well it's already dead. But nobody knows it but you. And you chase girls with it. Right? I mean, that's an, I saw some of you women shudder when I started talking about it. If you, get sh if you shudder, can, can you, if I had a bull snake in my hand, wiggling in my arms, a great big thing, eight, nine feet long, most of you girls would not be too comfortable with that. Yet there is not a single thing that that snake can do to you. Not a one. Not a thing. But it can cause you to break your neck getting out of the room because you're scared. All right? When it comes to the fear of death for the believer, Satan has absolutely no power to keep a believer afraid of death. No power at all. He has been rendered inoperative. He's still got a little wiggle in him. Even though he was, his head was crushed at the cross, he still has a little wiggle in him. And when he's wiggling, in fact, with some women, even a snake that doesn't wiggle, though he'd be dead for 10 years, would still scare you. But you see, Satan, all these years, has had that, that wiggle, and, and he's intimidating people, but falsely so, because the Satan cannot touch you. All he can do is intimidate you. All he can do is get you to look at him and what he's doing and bring fear to your heart. But it's a false fear. It's a misdirected fear because Satan is a defeated foe. He was defeated at the cross and he is unable to do anything but intimidate us. So the, the real problem is not what can Satan do or what has God done. The real problem is how will you react to what God has done and to what you should know of what Satan can do and can't do. You see, it bothers me so much that people put such a focus on Satan. We are on the winning side. Satan is a defeated foe. And he's wiggling. And people are focusing attention on his wiggle. And there are people today that are Christians that are afraid to die because Satan has convinced them that it's somehow bad. Now, dying, the process, may not be very pleasant. I always have said that I've, I've got my way of dying if the Lord will be gracious to me. I've already got my order in. I want to finish preaching the best sermon of my life, and then I want to drop dead right there on the platform. And that'll be it. And go in immediately into the presence of the Lord. And I don't care when it is. It can be any time. My wife doesn't like me to say, uh, say that. Uh, she'd rather have me say, you know, have, have it happen at 110. But uh, really, with me, it doesn't matter when it is because uh, uh, I'm in the hands of the Lord and my times are in his hands. And, and uh, the Lord is gracious enough to give me the years he's given me. I've had more years of good ministry, fr fruitful ministry than a lot of people have. And I could go any time and it wouldn't bother me a bit. But I really would like to finish that sermon before I die. And I don't know which one it's going to be, so you have to be held in suspense. But I'm not afraid to die. I'm flat, flat out not. Oh, I might have apprehension about the fact that my wife has to be cared for and all of those things that we always think of. But as far as the dying, uh, the, the going to glory is concerned, Satan just can't lick me on that one because my parents were very careful in teaching me there's nothing wrong with dying. It's a good thing. And so I have absolutely no problem with death. You 
could be the same way. All you have to do is spend some time studying and understanding the glories of being in the presence of Jesus Christ for all the countless ages of eternity. You know why I want to go to heaven so bad? That's where my treasure is. I got not much down here, and I have nothing down here that I mind leaving behind. I'm not attached to anything that I have, except my wife, and if she doesn't come with me right away, she can come later. My son, who also is coming later, my granddaughter, all of those. You know, see, people are going to go with us. Now, we can take them with us. That's why we need to be the witnesses we should be in our home. But you do not have to fear death. Now, I've spent a little bit of time talking about that, even though that has nothing to do with what we're talking about in Romans 6, except to say this. It does show us how we deal with the flesh. The flesh can intimidate you. It has been rendered powerless, but it coaxes you. It coaxes you. It says, come on, try it, you'll like it. Try it, you'll like it. Constantly trying to put us back under that bondage of doing the things that are not pleasing to God. And there's the struggle within us of that part of our nature who wants to respond to the coaxing of that dead old nature who wiggles out there, rattles a little something in front of us, and we look, oh, that does look good. Boy, I remember. I used to enjoy that. No, I don't. Yeah, I really did enjoy it. No, you shouldn't. It's not pleasing. No, you see? And we, we respond to this. And the thing we have to know right off the bat, and notice that's one of the key keys in verse 6, and I'm going to give you some steps here in regard to what you have to have in the way of ammunition in order to gain the victory that is already paid for, already yours, and the first thing is you have to know it. And a lot of people flat out don't know it. And especially, I find, in this day and age, no matter how much you try to share with people about this, they do not really know that their old man was crucified with Christ. They do not know that. They don't know that there is a kind of a, a false intimidation that the, the old nature gives to us. But it's already under condemnation. I would just ask you a question. Dumb illustration, probably breaks down about as soon as I get into it, but it strikes me that this might give you an illustration. You see an old house that uh, you think, boy, you know, that is, I'd like to buy that house. I'd like to buy that house and live in it the rest of my life. That's just the kind of house that I would like to have. And so, uh, you go into the house, and uh, there are a few creaks in the floor, and so on and so forth. Uh, but to you, with your untrained eye, it looks really pretty good to you. So you go to the banker, and the first banker tells you, Look, mister, I won't loan you a dime on that house. That house has already been condemned. It's already been condemned. Well, it looks good to me. Well, it may look good to you. But termites have eaten it. And uh, that thing is just going to cave in and be nothing but dust within a short time. It's as far as the bank is concerned, we couldn't loan you a dime on it. How many are going to go to a second banker and see if they don't know about that? Not very many of you. You may go to another banker, or you may have an appraiser come in and take a good look. You might have the termite inspectors. You might look the thing over. But let's suppose that you find out that everything the banker told you is true. It's a condemned house. But all of a sudden, 
a long-lost uncle dies and leaves you enough money to buy that house, whether the banker will loan you money on it or not. How many are going to take their money and go and buy that condemned house? Even if you were to buy it for some reason that I couldn't possibly comprehend, would you move your family in there? Knowing the thing is disintegrating around your feet and that there's absolutely nothing you can do about it? It's had it. It's already condemned. You're going to move your family in there? Take a risk of their life when the roof caves in? It'd be crazy. As I say, I don't know whether that illustration breaks down or not, but I do know this, that there's a sense in which here's this house that God has said is already condemned. It's under judgment. It's going to have the fire of God fall on it. And a lot of people live there. And they listen to the dictates and they enjoy the scenery that they have from that old house, not even remembering, not even knowing that the thing is under condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. You're not under condemnation, but your old nature is. And it's one of those things that's going to be excess baggage, and when you get your resurrection body, you ain't going to have one. Praise God for that. You're not going to have an old nature in glory because there's absolutely no room for judged things in glory. And I, I feel so sad to see what I think really has become the average Christian spending away his days living in a condemned house. Living according to the dictates of the flesh. Never knowing the pleasure that there is in pleasing God. Doing things selfishly. Doing things for himself rather than doing those things that bring glory to our Savior. So it says that's the first thing, knowing this, that your old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be rendered inoperative, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. One of the great purposes of the death of Christ was not only to remove the guilt and the penalty of sin, but to remove you out from under the domination of it. To move you out of the slave market of sin. Remember the Lord Jesus in Matthew or John chapter 8 said, Whosoever commits sin is the slave of sin. In fact, let's go over there for a moment to John 10. Uh, John 8. very important text in regard to this whole principle. The uh, thing that Christ says in verse 31, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. By the way, a third class condition. You want a little tip. Whenever you see an if, find out what it is. But whenever you see an if, then uh, circle it and put a 1cc or a 2cc, a 3cc or a 4cc down there, and then you'll remember it. Uh, that doesn't take up much space. This is a 3cc, third class condition, all right? If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now remember, the Pharisees are standing around, and they answered him. We are Abraham's offspring 
and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Is that true? Well, of course not. Never, ever? We're Abra Since the time of Abraham to the present day, we're never, ever slaves to anyone? Come on. Everybody ever read about the Babylonian captivity? Anybody read about uh, the children of Israel in Egypt? Anybody ever hear about what's happening at this period of time in the first century under the domination of Rome? To say nothing of the fact that they were slaves to sin, slaves to habit, slaves to the law that they couldn't keep. They were slaves, 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 slaves. They were in slavery. And Christ has to make this point. But they're saying... We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you have become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, you know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Beloved, do you see the picture? God has made provision for your freedom. You don't have to live under the domination of sin. I wish somehow, I, this is a message I wish we could shout from the housetops over and over and over again. There's victory in Jesus Christ. We do not have to live under the power of sin. Christ and his truth is going to set you free. But now, it's very important to note this. You know the truth. The truth will make you free. You say... We say we've never been slaves. You say we're free. Christ says, have you, have you ever committed sin? If you've ever committed sin, you're the slave of sin. Yeah, but here's, what, here's where it becomes very important. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If the son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You see, the slave lives in separate quarters. A slave in those days would have uh, kind of a, an apartment that was uh, connected, perhaps, but not a part, not considered a part of the house. Uh, they would come in and clean, and they might even be invited to dinner once in a while if they have a good master, but they don't have any part or parcel in the house. We are born in the slave house. That's where I was born. That's where you were born. Because of Adam's sin, I was right behind him. It didn't take me long to figure out how to sin. And so uh, I was a sinner first because I was born in Adam. I was a sinner secondly because I acted like Adam. And, uh, and it reminds me of a story which I uh, probably shouldn't take the time to tell, but it's too much fun to not tell. And back in the days of slavery, there was a, a master who had a slave and the slave uh, was a faithful slave, and the master was a good master. Uh, and uh, we won't get into the moral issue of whether slavery is good or bad. Obviously, I don't agree that slavery is a good thing, but it was an accepted fact in those days. Get that out of the way, first of all, so nobody misunderstands. But uh, the good old slave, he saw, the, he saw the master sitting there on the porch, sitting in the rocking chair, drinking lemonade, and he was busting up a pile of wood, you know, chopping it up. And he uh, he told, he, he was muttering to himself, he was saying, Oh, Lord, Lord, curse Adam, curse Adam, curse Adam. Why did he have to sin? Why did he have to eat that apple? Well, if he hadn't eaten that apple, 
He says, Lord, he said, I'd be sitting in the rocking chair drinking lemonade instead of out here cutting wood. Well, the master overheard his mutterings and figured out what he was saying. He said, hey, come here a minute. And he said, he said, what were you saying? And he said, well, I was just, me and the Lord are just talking, and I was just telling the Lord how mad I am at Adam because Adam, Adam said, oh, the master said, don't you understand? If you had been Adam, you would have done the same thing. Oh, no, master. No, sir. Not me. I'm not about to do that. Well, okay. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll give you a try. I'll go out and bust up that wood. And you sit here and take my place. But he said, uh, just one thing. See this little box here? He says, I don't want you to open this box. And you go ahead. Drink the lemonade. Drink all you want. The whole pitcher of it there. You sit in the rocking chair. I'll go out and chop the wood. But just remember, don't open that box. Well, you know, the slave enjoyed his luxury for a little while, but he kept looking at the box. Sure looked good to him. Who'd ever know? So he finally, after a long period of wrestling with his heart, he just looked around, didn't see anyone, and he opened up the box, and inside was a note saying, Now you see what you've done. You get back out there and chop the wood, you're just as bad as Adam. <laughs> and the fact is that we are. If we think that just because that we are somehow treated unfairly because of Adam's nature given to us, in the first place it's not unfair because Adam was a progenitor of the whole race. But we're sinners because of Adam's sin and we're sinners because we look like Adam, act like Adam, walk like Adam, and we are Adam. And we'd do the same thing if we were in the same boat. None of us any better, none of us any worse. We just would have done it because sin had a way and Satan tempted, but in any event, God provided so that there might be deliverance from that household, from that, from that slave, slave house of sin. We in the slave house of sin could never provide for the freedom of the other slaves, nor could we provide for our own freedom. It required someone in the house doing something that would set the slave free. And the slave doesn't abide in the house. The son abides in the house. But when the son sets free the slave, the slave is really free. The master always had the right to release a slave and to give him freedom and exonerate him totally. And therefore, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And I, I, I think that there are people today that understand something of their freedom in Christ, but they don't understand the indeed part. They understand that Jesus Christ gave life, but they don't understand the idea that he gave them abundant life. And that happens two chapters later, where Jesus speaks of the fact that he's come to give us life and to give it more abundantly. And it's the abundant life that is so sorely missing in the lives and the hearts of so many Christians today. So you go back to Romans 6, and you see that we have to know that. We have to know that we're free. We have to know that the old self was crucified. We have to know that sin has no longer any any uh, power over us. And then to reinforce it, he says in verse 7, For he who has died is freed from sin. 
It's the word, again, that's for justification. He has been justified from sin. Legally given his freedom. He who has died is freed from sin. Now, I guarantee you something. When a man dies, whether he's Ted Bundy, who died in the electric chair in Florida yesterday, or whether it is, whether it is uh, uh, a person who dies in an automobile accident, you can't do anything more to that person. Now, this is a gross illustration, but it gets across. I wouldn't suggest you do this. So I'm not making this something that you experiment with. I'm merely using it for the illustration. Suppose that you were to go down to the mortuary, and uh, you were to take with you a great big hat pin, and you come across a dead body in the mortuary. If you pick, stick the pin in the body, will the pin respond or react? You say, that is really gross. Yeah, I know it is, but I ask you a question. You see, I want to tell you something. And I'm as guilty as you are, so confession is good for the soul. When someone says something unkind to you, do you react? Dead people don't. Dead people don't. They stick a hat pin in you. I'm not talking physically. I'm talking emotionally. Can you hurt a dead person? In fact, worse yet, stand over a dead person and call him every name you think of. See how many names it takes before he finally gets mad enough to react. You say, it'll never happen. He's dead. You got it. So are you. You ever notice Christ never, never reacted? Boy, they said some awful things to him. He didn't react. Oh, I'll tell you, his, his, uh, his life as he is, as the perfect man, responded, and there was, there is a response of heart that is totally different than the old response. See, the old response is somebody says something you get mad. The new nature's response. You hear the same thing. And uh, in all likelihood, you will be grieved uh, because of the ignorance of the other person that would say such a thing, because of, of a concern for his, his language, a concern for his, his uh, demeanor, a concern for the onriness of his spirit, all of those kinds of things. Christ reacted in the proper sense, in a right sense, to those things that went on around him. But Christ never gave a retort in defense of himself, such as we do. And you see, if we have his life in us instead of the old life in us, if we are responding according to the crucified man, we will get, get mad and upset. One of my favorite little books, as a lot of you know, is a little book entitled If by Amy Carmichael. And in that book, uh, there, there are uh, there, it's mostly blank pages. It's a big waste of paper, except for the fact that when, that when you first see it, you might think that. Until you read it, and you begin to realize that all that uh, uh, 
blank space was room she gave you to think. Uh, because every single line is just so pungent, and especially one that has always stuck with me. Uh, in each case, she ends her her little statement with, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If this happens, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If this happens, then I know nothing of Calvary love. And she goes on and on with this. Before I tell you the one that I was thinking of, you should understand that someone one day who worked with Donover Fellowship with Amy Carmichael asked, asked, uh, uh, was asked by someone who was visiting there, said, was Amy Carmichael perfect? And the person's immediate response was, no, of course not. Nobody is. It's impossible anybody's perfect. But we never saw our sin. I mean, the assumption is nobody's perfect, but we never saw it. If, if she sinned, we never saw it, ever. They worked closely with her, night and day. They watched her for years on a bed of illness. On that bed of illness where she was in, on, in excruciating pain, she still refused to come home. She lived in India until her death. And on her bed of, of pain and agony, she wrote over 30 books. And constantly had the Indians come to have her speak with them and counsel them and help them and share with them and minister to them. She was that kind of a woman. Nobody ever saw her sin. <laughs> Sorry. It's already too late for me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but man, man, what victory she had in her life. But this little statement could well have been part of the key of understanding this marvelous woman. Because she says this. If, and I can't quote it precisely, but the gist of it is this. If a sudden jar can cause one harsh or angry word to come from my mouth or an unkind thought come to my mind, then I know nothing of Calvary love. This is the only one of all of her little statements in If that has a footnote. But the asterisk takes you to the bottom of the page where it says this. A cup of sweet, a cup brimful of sweet water can never spill one drop of bitter water, no matter how hard it's jolted. Touche. Well, again, he wants to so fill us, so so flood our lives that we, in essence, will no longer spill any bitter water. We're dead. Now, since we have died, another first-class condition, since we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. First thing is, you know that you're dead, all right? Now, you have to rec recognize that because he didn't stay dead and because we are identified with him, we are now identified with him in his resurrection life. So we don't stay dead, but it's no longer 
us who is living. It's a new man. Knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead. So there's a second thing you need to know. That Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. That's an obvious fact. But there's something else. Death no longer is master over him. He has been transferred from death to life. Therefore, since he can't die anymore, there is no longer any power that death has over him. He can laugh in the face of any threat, laugh in the face of any anyone who is threatening him with death. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So it's no longer, our feet are no longer attached to the terra firma. We now have a whole new lease on life. We are able to live completely unto God. We no longer have to serve the old master. We have been freed by death. The master can, master comes to you and says, come and serve me. And we say, I'm sorry, but remember, I died. And uh, you said I had to serve you until death. All right, I'm dead. Now having been dead, I no longer live. Therefore, you don't have a servant anymore. But I have a new master with my new life. That's the point. So then it says in verse 11... Even so, consider yourselves, or as the old King James has, reckon yourselves, count on it, have it as as an account with you, reckon on it, recognize that it is a fact, and live accordingly. Even so, reckon yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. And what happens as a result? Therefore, you don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. You flat out don't let it. So first of all, you know. Secondly, you reckon. Thirdly, you don't let sin reign any longer. And then uh, verse 13, and don't go on presenting or yielding the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law, but under grace. Now the marvel of that is simply that when you know the truth concerning victory, when you reckon on that victory, knowing that you have died with Christ, knowing you have been raised with Christ, you reckon on that, you live accordingly, you, you, you refuse to respond any longer to what you once were, to your old habits, to your old way of life, to the old temptations, you refuse any longer, and you take that, in, that step of faith, and you step toward the service of God, doing the thing that God wants you to do, living for Him completely, you don't let sin any longer take possession of you. You yield yourself to Him. No longer yield the other way. No man can serve two masters. Either to love the one and hate the other, or he will he will uh, hate the one and cleave to the other. You can't serve both. And a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It, it's a it's a flat-out thing where a person must come to the place in his life and experience where you say it's all or nothing. 
It's all for God. I give him my all. I, I will live for him. If I catch myself slipping back into living a selfish life, living for materialism, living for secularism, living in conform to this world, whenever I catch myself doing that, I will renew the pledge. I will renew the yielding. I will turn my back on those things and I will step forward. The problem is that 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 it's it's a matter again of Pilgrim's Progresses or John Bunyan's Mr. Facing Both Ways. As long as a person is facing both ways, as long as he is tolerating even a little of the of the lure of the flesh, a little of the temptations of Satan, as long as he keeps dabbling in that stuff, he will continue to be a slave to it. He he forges his own manacles. And the thing that we don't realize, that is so important to realize, is that the manacles, even though we forge them, cannot hold us. But what it means is a deliberate about faith. We have to turn from that and we have to turn to God. We have to say, no longer will I do it. I go on with God. And there's always this factor. In the book of Ephesians, you are told there are three things that you must continually do. First of all, put off the old. Secondly, put on the new. And thirdly, change your thinking. Keep the thinking. Get the thinking going. And it's the thinking, by the way, is one of the reasons why we need all of the Word of God we can get, privately and publicly. Everything you can get, all the teaching you can get. We ought to be devoted to it. Why? Because you read Psalm 19 and you'll know why. He shall know the truth, and truth shall make you free. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth over and over and over again. The word of God is that which provides the practical sanctification for the life. It's the one thing that will renew your mind. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, the thing that will transform your mind by the renewing, uh, transform you by the renewing of your mind. It's the word of God over and over again. It's one of the reasons I'm committed to teach. And I, you know, if one person shows up, I give them the whole ball of wax. I give them everything. I don't care. I don't care. We have big crowds, small crowds. Anybody? I never cared about that. I'm going to teach God's word until Jesus comes because it's what I'm called to do. I just keep teaching and teaching and teaching. And if they didn't stop me, I'd keep on going all night tonight. I mean, really, because I know what it can do. The thing that grieves me is there's so many people that don't see it as a number one priority. They don't see it as as so important. They can do a million and one other things. We've got people in this church tonight that are sitting home watching some Delton television program because they think they're all right living in defeat. And they don't realize it's your daily food. It's that which will nourish you. It's that which will change your mind. And then to prove in Ephesians, and to prove how this thing works in practical reality, Paul says, let's deal with lying. Here's how you stop lying. First of all, you stop lying. No falsehood at all. Secondly, you start telling the truth. Best way to best way to stop telling a lie is to commit to always telling the truth, whatever the consequences. And then, here's a mind changer. Because you're members one of another. When you deal falsely with another, you deal falsely with yourself. So don't tell lies. Tell the truth. I'll guarantee you something. Guarantee you. As long as you tell the truth, you will never again lie. Is that right? 
Sure, as long as you tell the truth, you will never again lie. And you know what you find? The more you tell the truth, the more you get in the habit of telling the truth, and you're, you're going to find yourself later down the road, especially with this renewed mind, you're going to find yourself telling the truth that I'm trying. Because God is the God of truth. And Christ was able to live his whole life with no guile in his mouth, never any deceit, ever. Hey, he made it. Sure, he got crucified. That was part of the plan of God. And it goes on. Let him that stole, steal no more. But rather, let him labor with the hands. The way you cure a thief is make him work hard. Not just that, but here's the mind changer. Learn how to work hard, earn money, and give it away. If you haven't done the job, if you simply teach a thief how to work, you've got to teach him how to be generous. Because a generous, as long as you are generous, you are not stealing. Because stealing is never generous. See what I mean? And it goes on and on and talks about all of those practical details. God wants to give you victory. We'll have to talk a little more about this next week, finish it up. But we'll... Uh, get back to it at that time and let's pray Lord it's so good to just think these things through and think in terms of what you've provided and what we have in our Savior God I would pray you'll help us to begin to lay hold of what we have in Christ I think of the multitudes of people who, who just don't know how to live in victory. We feel so sorry for them. We want to help them in the worst way, but we've been taught so much by psychiatrists and psychologists and by humanists that we're supposed to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So many Christians have tried to do that, tried to be better apart from the power of God, and they've utterly failed, and they've, they've settled in their failure as the norm. God, we pray you'll deliver us. Help us not only preach this, but to live it out. Forgive us for, for failure from time to time in some of these very things. It's so ridiculous for us to fall into sin, become the slave to sin, when we have victory inwrought in us because of the indwelling Christ. Help us live by faith and not by sight. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name.